0: Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, you know, I I want to say this about Mother's Day before we get into our message. I, I know that today is actually a day that comes with a wide variety of emotions and feelings. Uh, some in this room have had challenges with their mother. Maybe that's a relationship that hasn't always gone exactly the way you hoped that it would. Maybe you lost your mom here recently or in the past, and the pain of that is actually somewhat fresh on a day like today. Some in this room I know have struggled with motherhood. Maybe motherhood's been hard for you. Maybe there's mistakes and pain that just sort of sits in that area and constantly is as a burden for you. Some in this room aren't mothers and don't necessarily want to be. But this is a day that kind of puts a lot of pressure on you and maybe even seems to send the not-so-subtle message that you are subpar because of the choice that you've made. Or maybe the reverse is true. Maybe motherhood is something that you've always wanted and longed for, and yet it just has not happened, and that can be a difficult, hard place, can be a real painful thing as well. Friends, if that's you today, if for any reason this is a hard day for you, I want to say right off the top that you have come to the right place. Jesus loves to take difficult, challenging, painful situations and redeem them into something beautiful. And, and his church, the people, the community of people who follow him, is and always should be a safe place to have struggles, even on a day when Hallmark says everything should be perfect. Amen? So if that's you today, friends, thanks for trusting us enough to be here. Um, we're glad you're with us. We also want to be a community that celebrates. We want to celebrate the gift of motherhood. We want to celebrate the great moms and the great women who are here in our midst. So if you are a mom and you're in this room this morning, let me, let me say this to you. Hear this from me. Thank you so much for what you mean to us. Thank you for the ways that you have and continue to mold and shape us. Thank you for the love you show and the perspective you bring. Thank you for all the countless things you do that no one ever sees or notices, or recognizes. Because I know this, being a mom can at times be a real thankless job. But, but not today, not at Senior Mill Bible Church. We want to say this, we love you, uh, we admire you, we tremendously appreciate you. So let's so I just give our moms a hand. And with that, grab your Bibles, open to John chapter 2. We're going to jump right in. This morning, we are looking at a moment in the life of Jesus that actually involves His mother. We are looking at Jesus' first miracle. We're diving into one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. This is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Buckle up, here we go. Read along with me. On the third day... John doing a little foreshadowing here for us. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. tasted the water that had been turned, he toasted it too, he didn't actually do that, he just tasted it, um, he raised the glass, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now as we get into this passage, I actually want to start with the very last verse. In verse 11, John gives us his concluding statement. He sums up this whole story and here's what he says. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which... He revealed his glory. You see, according to John, what happens in this passage is not just a miracle. A miracle is something done to display power, it's done for the masses to see. And the response to a miracle is generally widespread awe. But our story today is not just a miracle, it's a sign. And a sign in and all throughout the Gospel of John is an event that doesn't just show us that Jesus is real powerful and cool, but a sign very specifically reveals to us who Jesus is and what he's all about. A sign reveals to us his glory. A sign shows us what's so glorious about him, why he is so worthy of glory. Now... Significant about this sign in particular is this. It's the very first one. All sorts of signs, all throughout the Gospel of John, and yet this is the first one. This is the inaugural event. And all of us understand this, don't we? Especially during an election year, when someone stands up to declare that they are running for president, the very first things they say are extremely important. In fact... Their very first speech, their very first act, and even where it's held, will in some ways set the tone for a candidate's entire campaign. And so today we're going to explore Jesus' inaugural sign, where he tells us who he is and what he's all about, and we'll ask four questions this morning. Who is he for? Second, what does he do how does he do it? And finally, how should we respond? Who is he for? What does he do? How does he do it? And how should we respond? All right, who is he for? Right away, in the very first sentence of this story, John very specifically and purposely gives us the location of this event. is what he says. He says, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And then, again, in verse 11, he repeats it. So he starts with the location and he ends with the location. He gives it to us twice. Why? Because it matters so much to him. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee. Friends, do you know what's so special about Cana? You can see it there on the map. It's where Cana is. What's so special about Cana is this. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing special or significant about Cana, believe me. I dug and searched and researched and, like, tried to figure something out. In fact, Cana was quite simply a very small, relatively unknown town, just a few miles northeast of another relatively small, formerly unknown town called Nazareth. You may have heard of that town. It's where Jesus was from. So why? Why? Why does this matter? Why does the location of this event matter? Why does John go out of his way to bring up Cana here? Here's why. The God of the universe comes to earth, and when it's time for his first big revelatory sign, he doesn't go to the big shots in Jerusalem. He doesn't go to the famous and powerful of Rome He doesn't even do something seemingly all that important, really. He shows up in Cana, and he bails two teenage kids out of a catering disaster. (laughs) Like, what is going on here? I mean, think about it. Do you see what it is he's saying? Do you see the tone that he's setting for his entire campaign right out of the gate? He's saying, even the people in this world that no one else notices even the problems and struggles that seem to fly under the radar of everyone else matter deeply and significantly to our God. Friends, who are the folks who are off the grid, who are off the radar and God is saying, come join me in being a good news kingdom bringer in their lives. Come, notice them, see them because they matter to me. Who are the folks in your world that everybody walks by and yet no one ever sees? Who are the folks at your office? Who are the folks in your neighborhood? Who are the folks, high school students, in the hallways of your school that are invisible? You know, I was just talking to a woman from our church the other day and she's gotten involved in ministry to folks who are in prison and their loved ones. And I was talking to this woman and she was so passionate and excited about all that God was doing um, in and through this ministry. And one of the things she said that really grabbed me was this. She said, Getting involved in this ministry has opened my eyes to a group of people I never even realized existed before. You hear that? see... They were always there. They were always in our midst, but I never even saw them, she said. Friends, that's what God does. When we join Him in kingdom advancing work, He opens our eyes to the people all around us that we never saw before. The invisible people, the people who who don't matter to everyone else. So who is Jesus for? Who is his kingdom for? Even the unimportant, unseen people of Cana. Now, second question. What does he do? That's who he's for. What does he do? Well, one of the things you might be wondering is this. Pastor Dave, you know, you've really made a big deal about this being Jesus' first miracle, his first sign, and sort of setting the tone for all of his ministry, making this huge statement about who he is and what he cares about, and why in the world then would he choose this to be his first act? Why would he choose this to be his first miracle? I mean, think about all the things he could have done. He could have walked on water. You know, he could have healed a blind person. He could have driven out some demons. He could have provided food for hundreds and thousands of poor people. He could have done something that had some serious significance. I mean, seriously, a party that runs out of wine a little early doesn't seem like the highest of heavenly priorities, does it? If you're asking that question, it's a good one. But it also shows just how disconnected we are from this story. I mean, I know I joked earlier about this simply being a catering disaster, but it's not. It was so much more. You see, in, in the Jewish world, in the Jewish culture, it was the groom's family's responsibility to provide adequate hospitality for the wedding banquet. And a failure to do so, in this case, a failure to provide enough wine would have been a major problem. I remember when Amy and I were first married, and we had our very first apartment, we had moved to Minneapolis. We were kind of new to the city, and we didn't know a whole lot of people. Um, But we met this young couple at church, and so we decided for the very first time to have them over. It's the very first time in the history of our married life that we invited another couple over into our home for an official meal of any kind. So this is a big day, and so here come the Carlsons. They come to our house, they shell up, they look nice, and we're we're working on dinner. And I had one of those indoor electric grills. This is this is lame, but this is how it went. So and I'm like trying to grill hamburgers on this little indoor grill, and. Amy's kind of cooking some, some potatoes on the stove. As it turns out, we didn't time things just right, and so I'm about halfway done with the hamburgers, and Amy says the potatoes are nowhere near done, so she tells me to turn off the grill on the hamburger, so I stop cooking the hamburgers about halfway through, wait for the potatoes to get going, and then I start to try and recook the hamburgers again. Have you ever tried to do this? <laughs> Don't try to do this. It does not work. Actually, what happens is the outside of the hamburgers gets done really well, and the insides not at all. Furthermore, what happened to us is that these fairly good sized patties shrank down to the size of about, you know, silver dollars and so when it was time to eat them of course we had selected um, for buns Kaiser rolls and so we have these teeny little burnt on the outside raw on the inside hamburgers on these giant buns and the wife of this couple we invited over I think she was pretty much vegetarian anyway and you had to chew through like eight bites of dough to even get to any kind of meat that was all raw and red and bloody once you got into it it was just a really bad experience a complete whiff a total failure super humiliating However, that couple became some of our closest friends. And for years and years and years, we would laugh and joke about that first time that we had dinner together at our house. It kind of became this funny thing. Friends, this story today is not that moment. As one scholar I read this week wrote, this is not not merely an, an embarrassing situation. It is a dishonoring crisis for provisions to run out at a wedding, that would have been a source of major shame for the bride and groom. This is a shame-based culture. This is where when you blow it like this in a public way, there is a ton of guilt and shame attached to it. This is actually a moment when this couple's ineptness and their deficiency and their failure would be on full display for the entire community. This is a story that would stick with them and humiliate them for the rest of their married lives. This is no laughing matter. And you see what Jesus does here is that he tells us something. He tells us something about who he is and what he's come to do. And right from the very beginning, his message is this. I will start with your places of greatest shame. The work I come to do, who I am, the way I'll relate to you, is we'll start right here. Let's look at your places of great dishonor, of complete and utter failure, of total 100% shame. And then let's go from there. Let me ask you this, friends. Got any places of shame in your life? And I'm not talking about places of embarrassment, places where you're slightly embarrassed, not just little imperfections, but things that if people really knew what you did and what you thought and how you behaved or act acted or felt you would be disgraced you would be dishonored you would be utterly and totally embarrassed got any places like that in your life you see what we tend to do with shame you know what we do is we bury it we shove it down deep into our souls as far as it can go and we cover it with layer after layer after layer but friends you know what it's in there and it's not going away Got any places in your life where you just feel inept or powerless or humiliated? Places of of significant pain and torment and hurt? If you do, welcome to the party. And if you do, let me suggest this to you. It's in that place. It's in those feelings. It's in that moment. It's in that reality of your existence that you have the best possible chance to understand the gospel. The power of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. You see, the gospel, friends, the good news is not just that Jesus has come to do a slight improvement plan of your life. He doesn't just come to take away your already pretty upright, good moral existence and nudge you just over the hump. No, He comes to take you and grab you and accept you in your places of greatest dishonor, in your ultimate state of shame and disgrace, and offer you something in its stead. He comes to take your deepest shame and say, let me replace it with something more. And here's what that thing is. He wants to replace it with joy. Jesus, The message of Jesus, who he is, and what his gospel is all about, is that he takes our greatest shame and he replaces it with overwhelming joy. This is actually remarkable, so do not miss this. Again, this story is the very first sign through which Jesus reveals his glory. And what he does here for his very first sign... His very first event where he says, this is what I'm all about, is he takes a party that's been sabotaged by bad planning and he revives it. Actually, we learn this. He creates about 180 gallons of the most delicious wine. You know, I actually did some math this week, and at five ounces a glass, which is what Google says a glass of wine should be, what Jesus creates here is 4,607 glasses of the very best Pinot Noir. (laughs) And I point this out uh, fairly emphatically because sometimes we think of Jesus as the party killer. Sometimes he's the one who's always pouring cold water on all of our fun. Well, friends, as it turns out, that's not the biblical like, explanation of who Jesus is at all. John tells us here that Jesus is the one who actually comes to get the party started. There's a song about that that I'm just not going to sing right now, but I'm very tempted, I want you to know. Friends, weddings in this culture were major social events, especially in a small town like Cana. Everyone would have been invited. Even the folks from uh, the neighboring towns and villages would have been coming. This party would have lasted anywhere from two days to two weeks, depending on the financial status or how wealthy or poor the groom's family was. But most weddings typically lasted just about seven days. And at the very center of the wedding celebration, there was this one thing constantly flowing. Wine. One scholar I read this week said for a Jewish feast, wine was essential. The rabbis used to say this, the religious guys, like the guys who represented God, they'd walk around and say, without wine, there is no joy. When was the last time you heard that in church? (laughs) Friends, in this culture, wine was synonymous with joy. They represented one another. Now, quick side note here. This is not a passage about permitting or endorsing the consuming of too much alcohol. Uh, The first century readers of John's gospel would not have read this as permission to drink too much. Drunkenness in this culture was a shameful activity. And in fact, the Bible is very clear. Nothing in this world, no person, no material, no substance of any kind should control your life because that is a position reserved for God alone. And yet, friends, at the same time, This story tells us about Jesus, who he is and what he's all about, what the kingdom he comes to offer looks like. And the very first image we get is a party that seems to be heading downward, shame and disaster on the very brink, and it's turned around, it's turned into a festive, celebratory, joy-filled event that will not stop. 4,607 glasses of never-ending party. Now, let that sink in for just a minute. It's in the Bible. Let that picture, let that sign begin to inform you, begin to shape you, begin to shape your life and attitude of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You see, certainly following Jesus does not, or does and will involve suffering. It will involve self-denial and difficulty and struggle and hardship and carrying your cross. If you follow Jesus, there will be tough times. He assures us of that. But, but friends, do you understand that these are just means to an end? These are just moments along the greater path and plan of God to offer you peace and hope and redemption and joy. That is ultimately what God longs for His people and this world. In other words... If you're a follower of Jesus, don't be grumpy. Don't be a sourpuss, grinded out Christ follower. Tim Keller says it this way. Do you think Christianity is this? Suck it up. Just say no. Keep your nose clean. Sad of trouble. I know it's a grind, but if you want to be saved from hell, it's a tough job. But that's the way it is. Is that Christianity? Is that what you think the gospel is? If so, Keller says, Jesus throws down the gauntlet to you. He says, you don't really know me. You don't really understand who I am and what I'm all about and what my kingdom looks like. Friends, what does your life in Christ look like? Or maybe more significantly, probing a little deeper, in your mind, what is it supposed to look like to follow Jesus? What's your picture of being a Christian? And is there any room for a party in that picture? Is there any room for a party in your picture of following Jesus and living life in the kingdom? Question three. How does he do it? So who is he for? What has he done? He's come to offer us joy, overwhelming joy to replace our shame and sorrow and regret. How does he do it? Well, We need to get into this weird sort of strange interchange that Jesus has here with his mother to talk about this. Mary is at this wedding and right in the middle of the story in verse 3, here's what we're told. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, one challenge we have is that we do not actually know the tone That characterizes this exchange I really wish they had recorded the Bible audially That would have been really nice But we don't have that Um, And when we read this I think our our default is to assume That Jesus is perhaps a little annoyed Or frustrated with Mary in this moment Uh, Why? Why would Jesus be frustrated with Mary in this moment? Well, when you're 30 years old And your mom is still telling you what to do That even frustrates Jesus See, learn a lesson here I'm just kidding, that's a joke Friends, in our world, we we would never refer to someone that we loved and respected respected using the word "woman." Certainly not our own mother, right? It just sounds disrespectful, doesn't it? "Woman," um, don't try that, guys. But listen to this: in the ancient world, this was a common and even endearing way to talk to an older woman. I'll give you another example. You remember Jesus when he's dying on the cross. He's hanging there. He looks down and he sees his mom, Mary, and the disciple John, and he says this to his mom. It says, When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. It's a very tender and compassionate moment. So... We translate that back and discover that when Jesus says to Mary in this context, woman, he's not necessarily being abrasive or annoyed or disrespectful. What he's actually saying to her is, my hour has not yet come. And you know, all throughout the book of John, Jesus talks about this hour, this mysterious hour, and what he's referring to is the hour of his death. And the idea here is that Jesus is saying to Mary, this isn't the big moment. We are not there yet, Mom. Let's just keep it on the DL. I will handle it, but let's just keep it a bit more subtle. And as John goes on to tell us, that's exactly what Jesus does. He handles the problem without revealing to everyone his identity. And John gives us a, very, uh, gives us a few very important details about how this plays out. Verse 6. He says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And this really isn't surprising. According to the Jewish law, every guest would need to wash their feet every time they left and re-entered the wedding. They would also need to wash and cleanse their hands in between every course of every meal. And given that this was a multi-day, probably seven-day long event, a lot of cleansing was going to be happening at this party. And the real question is, why? Why all this cleansing? Why all this washing over and over and over again? Are they just that health conscious in first century Palestine? They're not. The simple answer is that This washing was to remind the people of their unclean, sinful status before God. It was to remind them of this. Their lives, their hearts, their souls were not clean before a holy God. So now, check this out. The water that was originally planned to be used for cleansing will now be turned into... Wine, and we've already talked about how wine was symbolic for joy and blessing, but there's something else that wine is symbolic of in the scriptures. What is it? It's the blood, the blood of Christ, right? Yeah, the blood he shed on the cross. And And so through this miracle, through this sign, Jesus is revealing that our ultimate cleansing, our ability to stand in the presence of God, cleansed of all our sin, will no longer come through repetitious religious exercises but in the New Covenant, it will only come through the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses us. Listen to how John tells this story. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And here's my favorite part right here. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And then John adds this very descriptive fact. So they filled them to the brim so they filled them to the brim you see our shame our dishonor our disgrace our sin is not just replaced with a little bit of joy It's not just barely covered by joy. The joy that you and I are offered in Christ through the cleansing act of His blood shed on the cross is an overwhelming, brimming to the top, spilling out of our lives kind of joy. And furthermore... This joy coming into me and coming into you and replacing our shame and guilt and sin, it doesn't happen through our own energy, our own effort, our own ingenuity in any way. It happens through the overwhelming, life-filling, to-the-brim-cleansing power of Jesus' blood shed for you on the cross. It's 110% free. You see, friends, this story, it isn't just a party, it's the gospel. The good news that even when we don't even understand and can't see how much trouble we are in, the the couple getting married never even knows, right? Jesus comes to rescue and restore and save us to a life of overwhelming joy. Even when we don't even understand and can't even see how much trouble we are in, Jesus comes to rescue, restore, and save us to a life of overwhelming joy. And this leaves one last question. How should we respond? How do we respond to this good news? Again, let's look at the last verse. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him and his disciples believed in him his disciples show us the, the, the proper and right response to the gospel to the good news of Jesus to who he is and what he's come to offer that, New Test, that word believed is the New Testament word for faith it's the word pistuo. and I think this passage friends gives us a remarkable recipe for what faith what faith in the New Testament looks like what a response to Jesus looks like and it has two parts trust and taste you want, to, you want to know what it looks like to have faith in Jesus to trust Jesus to have pistuo in him it's to trust and taste you see there's this great moment in the middle of this story I don't, I don't know if you caught it but Mary sort of barks and tells out this group of servants what does she say she has this interchange with Jesus and she looks at the servants and she says do whatever he tells you to do just do what he says to do, no matter what. And, and then Jesus goes on to tell these guys to go and refill these giant jars of water for cleansing. And i got to imagine that the servants at this point were kind of thinking, what in the world is going on here? Why is this going to help? How is this going to solve the wine problem in any way? We're out of wine. Putting water in the cleansing jars isn't going to help at all. But what do they do? They listen they obey they follow they trust him and then what's the end result we've talked about it already lots of wine for people to drink right you know it's 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 interesting it's interesting friends how so many times we say god show me the path show me the way i want to follow you and he says all right we're going this way and we go i don't see how that's going to help lord You know, I don't know. I just does not feel like that's the right spot. Or like, I don't see how that's going to get me from A to B, friends. That's so often what God does. He says, follow me. It may seem like nonsense to you. It may seem irrational. It may seem like silliness. But all I'm asking you to do is come with me. That's what these guys do. That's called faith. That's called trust. That's called reliance. That's called following Jesus, even though you don't know exactly what he's up to. And then, friends, we see what faith, what trusting Jesus leads to. It leads to tasting Jesus. You know, it's interesting how the thing that the New Testament uses over and over again to as a significant symbol for what it means to experience God in, in our lives and to know Him in a personal way is wine. As a part of the Lord's Supper, it's... And wine is something that's impressive because it's something you can look at. You can watch it. You can observe it in a glass. You can swirl it around and take a look at the ribbons on the edge of 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 the glass. You can learn a whole lot about wine by just looking at it. You can believe in wine. You can even trust the opinion of other wine tasters that it's a good wine. But in order to truly know a wine, what do you have to do? You have to taste it for yourself. You see, that's the offer of Jesus today. He says, come trust me so that you can taste me. Come follow me and experience me. Come rely on me so that you can see and feel and experience what it means to be one of my children for yourself. So you can see and experience my power for yourself. See, faith, friends, is about trusting God so that we can taste more of God. It's about tasting God so that we want to trust Him even more. And taste leads to trust, which leads to taste, which leads to trust, which leads to becoming a person of faith. A person who says, Jesus, no matter what you say to do, where you're leading, I will go because you are faithful. That's faith, friends, trusting and tasting. And so this morning... I'm going to invite you to the table. We're going to close in this way. We're going to close at the table celebrating the meal that reminds us what gives us life, what takes our shame and turns it to joy. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you come to the table this morning, let me just ask you to consider two things. Is there a place in your life where you need to trust more? Is there a place in your life where God has been calling you, asking you to step out in faith, and yet you've been hesitant because you're not really sure what will happen? You're not really sure how things will go? And God is saying, that's exactly why I'm asking you to come with me, so that we can discover it together. Is there a place in your life where you just need to trust? Or maybe today, maybe this morning it's about tasting. Maybe Jesus has been this person that you've known about. you've heard about from others, that you've observed from a distance, but you've never actually invited him into your life. You've never actually tasted him for yourself. You've never actually said, I want to have a personal intimate relationship with you. That's what's available to you. That's what's available to you this morning in this meal. Jesus says, come and experience me. Come and take the bread and take the cup as a declaration that I'm not just some far-off God who logically and mentally exists, but who wants to know you personally. If you want to know Jesus personally today, come to the table. Admit that you're a person of brokenness and regret and sin and shame. And then accept... God's free gift of joy found in a relationship with Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection on the cross. Take a few minutes. Do whatever business you need to do with God today before we head off to, to lunch and brunch and celebrate and our moms. Spend some time with the Lord and then when you're ready, come to the table. Receive the elements. Take them on your own at your seat. Father, thank you for this party that you saved 2,000 years ago and thank you for the party and the joy of following you thank you that you are a God who comes to bring life and bring it to the full may we walk with you and in you in ways where we can experience that and in ways that other people can see it in us see your love, see your grace, see your joy and see your kingdom, that's our prayer and we pray it in Christ's name Amen.